Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and co-hosting with me today is Heritage Foundation Senior Policy Analyst and our friend, Brenda Hafera. Brenda, wait, did I say your name, last name wrong again? Or no, did I say you it said right? it right. I said it right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> last time Brenda was on, I said her last name wrong, and I had a moment of freak out. So I was like, wait, did I get it wrong? Totally I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Brenda, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today for the first time is our friend Emma Waters. Emma is a research associate in the Heritage Foundation's Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, I learned something new about you yesterday. You came into my office and you were talking a little bit about the show, and you started telling me uh, that you have learned to bake bread, um, and not just bake any kind of bread. There's actually like a real practical impetus behind this, which I was very fascinated by. Yes, that's correct. So over Labor Day weekend, we listened to a podcast on making the kitchen productive again. And so a lot of the examples they were giving were more true to the Midwest or more rural communities. So it got me and some friends thinking about how do we make the kitchen productive in Washington, D.C. in a basement apartment when you have about five feet of kitchen space? (laughs) For real, though. Like, what can you actually do? And so we had the idea to start baking homemade sandwich bread, Mm. something that you can make from scratch with wholesome ingredients so it's not bleached, overly processed flour, and that you can actually serve every day. So my husband eats sandwiches every day for lunch. And I thought, great, sandwich bread is something that we can make and we can produce from our kitchen and then slice and eat at home. And so we started practicing over the weekend and I've now made three or four loaves. Wow. And thankfully, they're getting better and better each time. So How long does it take to make a loaf of bread? It actually doesn't take that long. So I don't have a bread maker, but it takes about 20 to 25 minutes to mix all the ingredients uh-huh. and knead the dough. And then after that, you let it rise for two hours, you punch it, you let it rise for another hour, and then you put it in the oven for 30 minutes. Okay. And then you have, like, freshly baked buttermilk honey bread that just tastes so good. Oh, I feel like that's the perfect, like, Saturday or Sunday afternoon activity where you can kind of, like, go in and out of, like, baking and then, like, maybe watch something on Netflix and then bake a little more. Yes, <laughs> and you have your pumpkin spice candle going. Uh, but yes. it's so refreshing because, especially when you work in the laptop class of D.C., your entire week is on a computer typing. And while you're doing good work and you're producing things, they're not often tangible items yeah. that you're producing. <laughs> and so it's also so satisfying to go into the kitchen and then leave with, like, an actual product that you made that you not only consume, but then you can also give to other friends and, like, know that you've created something beyond yourself. When you in it. And so it's been really satisfying to do. I feel inspired. Brenda, I need to go home and bake some bread. (laughs) (laughs) Do you bake at all? I actually do. I love to bake. um, And I bake bread pretty often. There's different, yeah, there's different kinds of bread and you can cheat a little bit. The no need breads are kind of fun too, but it requires a lot more time. You just basically mix all the ingredients together and then leave it overnight sometimes and just let it Yet let the yeast work and then stick it in the oven and it's just, yeah. Okay. Well, I need to get recipes from you all, I guess. (laughs) Start making bread. But we have a great show planned today. Brenda, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up. Up on today's Problematic Women, we discuss why detransitioner Chloe Cole is starting an organization and standing up to political leaders on the transgender issue. 
Plus, 66 abortion clinics have closed since Roe v. Wade was overturned. We also give a rundown of one of the pro-life fights ahead and explain why it matters. Finally, on today's show, we examine one writer's take on where this generation's belief comes from that my feelings are always the truth. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that we think are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Chloe Cole had a double mastectomy at the age of 15. Two years prior to that, she started taking testosterone and puberty blockers. And at 16, she decided to detransition. Now at the age of 18, she has become an activist and a leading voice against kids transitioning. On Friday, Chloe announced that she's launching a new organization to support those who choose to detransition. It's called Detrans United. The organization's first official act was to send a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Here's a bit of what the letter said. Dear Attorney General Garland, we are writing as a group individuals who formally identified as transgender. Many of us were young teenagers when we decided on the direction of medical experts to pursue irreversible hormone treatments and surgeries to bring our bodies into closer alignment with what we thought was our true gender identity. Many of us had extensive histories of mental illness. Many of us had experienced significant childhood trauma, but all of this was ignored because we uttered the word gender. This utterance placed us on a narrow medical pathway that led us to sacrifice our healthy bodies and future fertility and obeisance to the claim that our suffering was a result of having a gender identity that did not match our biological sex. In other words, we were born in the wrong body. Mm, so powerful. In this letter, uh, Chloe goes on to write the American Medical Association American Academy of Pediatrics and Children's Hospital Association fully endorse the gender affirmation model of care, which prevents medical professionals from questioning a child's self-reported transgender identity and from exploring possible underlying factors causing their dysphoria. These endorsements, however, run counter to the recommendations of other countries, such as Sweden, Finland, and the UK, who have conducted systematic reviews of evidence and concluded unanimously that the risk and uncertainties outweigh any known benefits. She ended the letter by saying, children deserve the best evidence-based medical care available. Silencing the victims and critics of gender-affirming practices is not a pathway to truth and justice, but to ignorance and harm. Please do the right thing. 
This letter was sent to the Attorney General just a few days after the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association sent a letter to Garland asking him to look into threats that are being made against doctors and hospitals that are offering gender treatments for children. Why do you all think that large organizations like the Children's Hospital Association have embraced gender treatments for kids so quickly? You know, I was thinking about this, and it, it is it's wild to see that we went from um, this really being not much of a conversation at all in the public spotlight to these really, really large, prestigious medical organizations like Children's Hospital Association embracing this. Um, and I, I feel like there's probably kind of two factors at play here. I, I do think that there's probably individuals who really do mean well, like they've truly bought into the lie that a kid can be born in the wrong body. And they they really have believed the narrative that, oh, this is the compassionate thing to do to, um, you know, let a child chop off body parts so that it matches who they believe that they are. Um, I, I do think, though, um, and it's unfortunate, but I, I do think you have to look at the financial side of it as well. And unfortunately, the whole um, the whole transgender movement is a huge money maker for the medical community. You know, the the transgender um, uh, the the various pills that kids are taking from a young age, whether it's puberty blockers or cross sex hormones, uh, that all benefits drug companies, the surgeries that are needed, obviously, is a ton of money for hospitals. Um, and then there's ongoing care. Once once someone ha- takes that step of having a surgery, there's a lot of follow-up medical procedures, kind of maintenance that's needed for the rest of that individual's life. So as much as I would love to believe that, you know, people are just confused and they fought the lie and that's the only reason I do think money is playing a huge role in medical organizations' really quick embrace of this ideology. And not even on the side of how much these surgeries and hormones cost. I've also heard reports of children's hospitals and organizations promoting the fact that they offer these um, transitional surgeries as a way to raise money. So they can raise money on Mm -hmm. this and then funnel it into other projects at their hospital. And so even if they themselves are not putting all of the money they're raising towards these surgeries, um, because the actual number of children who are seeking them out might not be quite as high, I think, as the media oftentimes makes it appear, they're able to take the money they've made to then fund other probably very very legitimate projects on their agenda. So I think a lot of this um, are medical providers and even administrators who are trying to track the trends. And so mm-hmm. completely devoid of moral good or responsibility that they have, they also have the responsibility to make ends meet. And this is just one of the ways they're trying to do this. And unfortunately, the cost is incredibly high and the outcome is horrible for the children who do go forward with it. But there's a lot to the financial side of it. Right. And an additional factor to what you all mentioned is that because these surgeries are considered sort of pushing the bounds and they're new, there's not studies on what is a typical negative side effect to those surgeries. And so there's less liability for the surgeons performing them and for the hospital because you don't have any thing to measure the negative side effects against. So someone Mm. can't file suit and say, 
hey, this I'm really experiencing some things that I should have because the data is just not in it's yet. Not so there's a additional protection for the hospital and for the surgeons who are performing these surgeries that they would not otherwise have. Oh, that's interesting, Brenda. I hadn't thought about that, that in some ways for them it's almost a, sa- a safer experiment because there's not that data to point to. Usually the statutes of limitations ends two years after a child turns 18, um, something in that range. So a lot of conservative organizations or common sense policymakers who believe that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl are pushing to extend the statute of limitations to closer to 15 or 20 years to give children or young adults who have undergone these surgeries time to actually process what has happened and then realize that the negative side effects are not only not going away, but are actually worsening as time goes on. Mm. And then that will disincentivize um, doctors and hospitals from doing those surgeries because it means they have 15 to 20 years that this could hang over them. So that actually seems like one of the better um, incremental policy decisions we could be focusing on to help limit this experimental aspect of the policy. Well, and I, I'm really interested by what Chloe Cole had to say, that the fact that you know she started this organization called D-Trans United because in her own personal experience and what she's seen is that when young people come out as transgender, they're celebrated, they're called brave. But then the moment they make that decision and say, no, I, I don't think I am trans, I'm going to live um, as my biological sex again – they're just sort of abandoned by that whole movement. Sometimes they're even shamed for that. And it really, I think, shows kind of the true colors of that whole movement and those backing that movement, that the moment that they uh, differ at all from the narrative, they're just abandoned. Right. And people become very uncomfortable with confronting the actual people like Chloe who have been harmed by mm. this narrative and the very real and severe consequences that she is now facing of she may not be able to have children. Like these are irreversible surgeries. And it seems very light um, in, in the beginning where a young girl starts going on testosterone and automatically she feels better because testosterone has that effect, right? Estrogen is a stress hormone, testosterone is not. And so it lowers their stress level and so it all seems very positive. And on the reverse side of a detransitioner, all it is is negative, but that's reality of these are the negative consequences that they're going to have to face for their entire life. And people just don't want to, they don't want to see that because mm-hmm. it's it's real and it's really um, gut-wrenching. Yeah, it is gut-wrenching. Another aspect of the D-Trans United project that I really like is on her website, she lists some of the projects that they are hoping to accomplish and the services that they're offering detransitioners. And one of them is providing legal help to file medical malpractice lawsuits, Mm. which is huge. Because once again, this is the way that you fight it, is when you all of a sudden have consequences for these surgeries. But they're also empowering detransitioners, I think, to have a voice and find a way to say that no wrong was done to me and here's a law or here's a method by which I can prove that, which I think is very empowering in and of itself because it goes beyond just their feelings or discomfort in their body and it gives them something grounded to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also means that whereas transitioning, like we said, is an incredibly expensive process, detransitioning 
uh, does not make big pharma as much money. It certainly doesn't improve the medical industry. So I think you're going to see some pretty severe counter lawsuits um, or opposition to these young boys and girls filing these lawsuits. So the fact that she's placed that as a tenant of D-Trans United is huge because not only are D-Transitioners going to need support emotionally and physically and mentally, they're going to need support legally. Because if you think that these doctors and these medical organizations and big pharma as a whole is not going to come after them or try to silence their voices, then we've really, (laughs) really underestimated them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and for for anyone listening who's curious to learn more or who maybe uh, wants to somehow get involved, whether through donation or um, just sending support, uh, you can visit dtransunited.com. This site is literally just launched, uh, but there's so much helpful information, especially if you or someone you know is walking through this. So good to have community to do that with. Uh, But stay tuned because up next, we're breaking down the latest abortion-related news that you need to know. But first, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and want to find other like-minded podcasts, look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast production of the Independent Women's Forum. And every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern, host Beverly Hallberg is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most. From the economy and education to foreign policy and everything in between, She Thinks has you covered. And if you can't wait for that next episode to drop, you can listen to past podcast episodes at iwf.org, or you can just search for She Thinks Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Representative Cori Bush of Missouri spoke vulnerably about her experience going to Planned Parenthood to have an abortion during an interview that she did with PBS firing line, Margaret Hoover. So let's take a listen to a portion of that conversation. I got into the last room. I, I was helped up onto the table by the nurse and I laid there and I started to think, well, one, I didn't tell the father that that was about to happen. Um, I, and I just, I just felt like I needed more time. So I said, no, you know what? I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And the nurse just, you know, wouldn't listen to me. And I said, no, I'm not ready. And as I'm saying no, they continue to pull the instruments and, you know, get everything ready. And, and it was just like, no, calm down. You know, no, you're going to be okay. So you were telling them that was, you didn't want to move forward. Yes. And they were ignoring you. They were, oh, they absolutely ignored me, um, even to the point of, you know, like, calm down as if I was the problem. And so I didn't really know, like, I I didn't understand at that point where, uh, like, where I had a voice, like, Mm -hmm. who listened to me. And so I remember laying there looking to see um, if there was someone else in the room that would, that would listen to me. And the, they ended up putting, during this time, they put the instrument inside me and started the instrument. So it was, and I'm saying no, but it was too late because you can stop once it started. Why do you think they didn't listen to you? The same as, as other times where I haven't been listened to by a provider um, or medical staff. You know, I was Why? a young black woman. You know, I it, multiple times I felt like it was, oh, well, we know better. You don't know what you need. 
you don't you don't understand. We know better. So Bush says that she was treated the way that she was at Planned Parenthood because she was a young black woman. What did you all think when you first heard this interview clip? Well, it's actually not the first time I've heard someone make this contention. Hmm. Magat Wade, who is a phenomenal woman, she is an entrepreneur really interested in promoting capitalism and entrepreneurship in Africa. She noted that uh, Mackenzie Scott had made a very significant donation to Planned Parenthood specifically for minority women to have abortions. And her response to that was, you just don't want more black babies in the world. Mm. And it's really sad because now in New York, more black babies are aborted than they are born. So to see this clip and to see that she was pressured, she felt like she was pressured into having this surgery, I think is is further evidence that this is something that we have to consider that's happening. Not only was she pressured, they didn't stop despite countless attempts to say no. So similarly, it makes me think first of the forced sterilizations of the 20th century Hmm. that were primarily targeted towards um, black or minority communities and poor women. Um, And they would make claims that it had to do with intelligence or it had to do with their opportunities in life. But ultimately, it came down to their assessment of that person based on race and based on their class. Um, And this is just another iteration of that. But you think back to the origins of even birth control. And Margaret Sanger was an active um, race eugenist. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that she wanted to push birth control, part of the reason that it was tested on Haitian and Puerto Rican women and then introduced first in the black community is because the explicit goal was to limit the the number of black children that were being born. And abortion's just been the latest version of that. and a heinous version because not only is it preventing the life of a child being born, but it's actively ending a life who's already conceived. But like this story with Cori Bush shows, a lot of the women who are receiving abortions don't want them, but they do feel pressured into them or quite frankly are. So we saw the live action undercover video a couple of months ago where a pregnant woman who was 28 weeks, I think, went to a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic And as she was talking to them and asking them questions, they were like, no, we see women who were this far longer later all the time. And not only that, they were giving her Xanax, um, which dulls the senses and makes you far more pliable. And she said, well, I want to talk to the doctor first. This is all on video. And the Planned Parenthood nurse said, no, take your Xanax first and then you can go talk to the doctor. Let's go ahead and get you into like a robe so you're ready. And so they're actively drugging women prior to talking to the doctor and then putting them in a medical room where I think all of us feel uncomfortable to a degree Mm -hmm. um, and and feel like we don't know what's going on and there's scary instruments and this is a very intimate procedure. And so there's a lot of vulnerability and nerves here. So they drug women, place them in this very uncomfortable setting, and then they have a doctor then force them along into an abortion um, that oftentimes these women don't want or aren't confident in, like in the case of Cori Bush. Yeah, it really is um, the true colors, I think, being shown of really what what does Planned Parenthood stand for? Well, we're, we're seeing it. And we, you know, these are things that I think so many people have known for so long, but to see it so blatant and to see people 
um, who maybe don't even consider themselves staunchly pro-life to be speaking out on this issue and sharing their personal experience is incredibly powerful. You know, I, I am encouraged by the movement that we've seen forward since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, about uh, 66 or 66 abortion clinics have either shut their doors or they're no longer performing abortions because of the laws in some of these states. And we know that hundreds of thousands of lives are likely going to be saved as the result of that. Even just looking at the numbers from Texas, last year Texas passed um, a heartbeat law, which uh, prohibits abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And just off of that law, we know that about 40,000 lives have already been saved. So, you know, you think about, you know, the kids that will be sitting in classrooms 10 years from now who wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for Roe v. Wade being overturned. That's really exciting. But we know that the fight's not over. Emma, I know that you're watching a lot of these battles move forward in states, and there's actually um, a specific fight in Michigan that you are covering and watching closely. It's called Proposition 3, and it's um, it's going to be on the ballot for people to vote on on November 8th. Explain what exactly that is and what is at stake in Michigan. Yes, so Proposition 3 in Michigan is an amendment to their state constitution entitled the right to reproductive freedom. So it will be on the ballot November 8th for voters to vote on. But once they vote on it, it's then taken completely out of the hands of the people and their legislative body. And it's placed within the Constitution itself. Um, And this is important because it means that all questions related to reproductive freedom If it's passed, um, this will place Amendment 3 solely within the judicial sphere of Michigan. So there are very few legislative steps um, that can be taken once this amendment is part of the Constitution. And so if it's passed, this means that the legislative body will no longer have the right to limit or adjust their abortion laws, and it will go to a court in Michigan to decide, which seems to undermine the very goal of the pro-abortion left-wing movement itself, right? Like, get it out of the courts. Like, we should decide. And then the moment they decide, they put it back in the courts and away from the people. And the reason this is important is because in the last few years, Michigan has actually solely passed legislatively pro-life protections. Hmm. So this is everything from informed consent laws requiring um, doctors and medical professionals to actually inform women of what an abortion entails, as well as the age and size and heartbeat of the baby before the abortion. Um, They've passed laws uh, requiring parental permission for a minor um, and a whole host of things. So legislatively, Michigan has actually been very pro-life. But with this amendment, it's about the most anti-life thing that you could imagine. And part of sort of the irony going into this, too, is that Michigan also had the fifth highest number of abortions in 2019. So very pro-life legislation being passed, very high numbers um, of abortion. And then Proposition 3, the right to reproductive freedom, is introduced. And so the short and sweet version of this is that every individual has a right to reproductive freedom. And reproductive freedom is not defined, but it says that it includes everything related to pregnancy, prenatal, postpartum, miscarriage management, abortion, sex sterilization surgeries, infertility, and contraception. Mm, It's a wide net. 
it's a wide net. And not only is it a wide net of things that are covered, it says every individual, which means a boy or a girl. There are no age requirements. There are no differentiations between minors or adults. Um, and it means men or women. And so this isn't just about empowering women. This is about empowering each person um, when it comes to getting cross-sex hormones, when it comes to surgeries, removing healthy breasts or reproductive parts, and even when it comes to things like surrogacy and IVF. And because it creates an absolute right to these things that every individual can access, it means that parents have no rights to direct or oversee the medical or emotional well-being of their children. So their daughter could go get um, plan B, morning after pills, she could get on birth control, and she could get an abortion all without the parent's knowledge or consent. And so you think about the countless abortion cases where women are being abused and they're being coerced into receiving abortions either from traffickers or family members or even just scared boyfriends who don't know what they're doing. There are no protections to help these women and sort of um, and to swoop in. And so parents don't have the right to prosecute or protect their daughters. And so you're creating an entire vulnerable population here. Um, and not only that, this amendment says that any individual who assists a woman in getting a, and they don't say a woman, right? They just say pregnant <laughs> person. person. Um, but we all know it's a woman, so we're going to go with a woman. Um, they just say that any woman who uh, any person who helps a woman get this cannot be prosecuted, which means that they have no legal recourse for um, coercion. They have no legal recourse for abuse. And then on top of that, just to make things worse, this amendment preempts all state laws regarding anything to do with those topics, mm. which means the over 41 laws protecting life in Michigan could be nullified if this is passed. Wow. And that's that. That would be that. Yeah. Do we know how um, kind of the ground fight is going in Michigan? Does it look like this is going to pass? Right now, the polling that has been released um, does show Mich Michiganders, people in Michigan, whatever you call <laughs> I, it. I think it's Michigan. I can't say it now. Michiganders. Michiganders. <laughs> Michiganders. I think that's a thing. <laughs> it if, is showing. If you live in Michigan, write in and tell us. <laughs> With proper pronunciation yes. in parentheses, please. <laughs> um, so right now, polling is showing that there is a fairly high support for this amendment okay. among people in Michigan. And ultimately, these abortion fights come down to money fights. Mm -hmm. And this amendment is was written and is being funded and promoted by ACLU Plan Parenthood and another pro-abortion organization, and not just any pro-abortion organizations, yeah. but the largest ones um, in the United States, if not internationally. Um, so it's not looking great on the ground. And once again, the framing of this, they don't get into any of the language. They deny that these are the repercussions, even though other proponents of this amendment, so folks who are in support of it, have come out and said, this is really vague and unclear, and we don't actually know what it entails. And yes, it will likely lead to the things you're talking about, but we support reproductive rights, so we should do it. But even people in favor of it recognize that these are likely outcomes, um, and, and they're outcomes that will likely be settled in the court, um, but settled nonetheless. So it's not looking great on that front. And, and the way they're framing it is just like, you believe women have a right to choose, right? Right. And we're just doing what Roe v. Wade did. 
even though they're going far beyond mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. Um, because with this amendment, they have the life and mental health of the mother exception, which is an exception that swallows the rule. Because what it means is that past fetal viability, which is around 22 to 24 weeks, and getting better, thankfully, with medical advancements, a woman could say, well, having this baby, even though this baby is 30 weeks and could be born and live, is causing me high levels of anxiety and depression. And these are like self-diagnosed mental health concerns. And then the pro-abortion Planned Parenthood doctors, the same ones that pushed Cori Bush into her abortion, would say, my goodness, look, she has mental health and this child would worsen it. Therefore, we can justify the abortion legally. Mm. And that's just the straight landscape that we're looking at. Wow. Do we have polling data on why people are in support of this bill? Is it because of the abortion aspect or the other aspects? Do they just not know of the potential other ramifications of the bill? I think it's In part, they do not know the ramifications of the bill. Um, This sort of analysis has been done by a lot of organizations, but is not being talked about um, by the main proponents of the bill. Um, And then secondly, when it comes to supporting it, we know that first, Americans are really divided on what they think about abortion and in many cases um, contradict themselves. So a majority of Americans support limitations on abortion, but allowance for first trimester roughly. Um, It's after first trimester that high numbers of Americans on the left and the right agree that we should either completely ban abortion or we should significantly limit it. And so once again, the way this amendment is being presented is as effectively a first trimester abortion protection. Um, And then they're just not getting into the fact that it actually would legalize abortion for all nine months and not only abortion, but a whole host of other areas. Yeah. Well, and we know that obviously uh, Michigan, this is such a critical fight. There are several other states that also have similar style of amendments on their ballots on November 8th, um, California, Vermont, uh, Kentucky is one of few states that actually has a pro-life, very pro-life amendment on their ballot. So there's some really big fights ahead. And uh, just want to, if Make sure that, you know, whatever state you're voting in, that you are voting uh, and that you're taking the time to look these things up before you're going to the polls and actually do your research and find out like, hey, uh, what does this mean? If this is passed, what would that actually change in my state? Because, Emma, like you said, sometimes the language is not super clear and you get in there and you got your little pencil and you're filling in the bubble and you're like, I don't know what this means, but it sounds nice. Right. Uh, So you have to do your research ahead of time. No, it's so true. And one more thing on this, when it comes to the women's health aspect, so apart from the fact that this is dealing with a living baby in the womb, when you don't value the life of a preborn baby – you are not going to value the lives of the women who carry the babies Mm. or the struggling men and women who were affected by gender dysphoria. Mm. And so when you have limitations to abortion and pro-life laws like you see in Texas and other places, we also know that we can expect to see incredible innovations in women's health care because all of a sudden abortion is not the cheap and easy answer Hmm. or cutting off your breasts is not the expensive but easy answer to Mm -hmm. feeling uncomfortable in your body. And you actually have to dig in and do the hard work of actually treating women well and understanding how their bodies work and providing them the care that they need. 
So in voting for this amendment, women are actually voting against advances in women's health care. Because instead of actually understanding a body, they'll just prescribe her birth control, give her an abortion, and send her on her merry way, causing far more problems than she had to begin with and not really advancing the medical field on behalf of women at all. Yeah, I think I think that lie of the abortion industry for so long has been it's kind of the quick and easy way out, which we know is not true because of that emotional trauma, because of the damage. And the reality is that while it's presented as a quick fix and it's a lie that I think so much of our society has bought into of sort of this message of self and putting self first, um, that the reality is uh, it has very, very dark and lasting and challenging consequences. Um, but I, I do want to talk about, on a little bit of a lighter note, uh, that kind of messaging, like where does that come from in our society? Uh, this, um, this I would maybe call it a lie, but I, I'm sure some people would debate me on that. Um, but that kind of thought process of, uh, you know, what I believe to be right is the absolute truth. I was really fascinated by an article in The Federalist recently that was written by a woman named um, Katie Schuerman. She is a mom and um, is an author. And she writes about the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of watching young people in our society really adopt this view of, you know, if I feel this way, it's correct, it's accurate. And her argument is that we've actually gotten to that place in society because of the things that we're consuming, both the TV shows, social media, but even like a lot of the modern books, the way that they're written. And she says that, you know, a, her, her prescription for how you cure that is challenging young people to read great books, to read books that challenge our ideas and our ideology and kind of make us realize that there's a world outside of ourselves, bigger than ourselves. So I, I was kind of interested by this because I, while I, I do love to read, I'm definitely one of those people that also loves plopping down on the couch to watch some good Netflix. Um, but I don't know, what, what do you all think of this argument that we can help to move society in the direction of uh, being a little bit less self-focused and moving away from that ideology that, you know, what I feel to be true is the truth if we move away from essentially screens. I thought it was a very good piece. Um, Carl Truman wrote an excellent book called Strange New World. That's actually the smaller version of the larger book that he wrote previously. He's at Ethica Public Policy Center. And he traces the intellectual development of what she's talking about, of expressive individualism, hmm. this notion that my inner self is my true self, and I just need to express that person rather than the older traditional idea, which is you have these desires and impulses as a human being, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, and some of them need to be tutored and educated. Mm. And so he traces this rise, which starts with Rousseau and the Romantics and goes through it. So I really recommend it. It's an excellent book. And it's it's what she's talking about, this like the inner self is my true self, and I need to express that. And I do think it's reinforced by our culture. It's you know, a kind of a cyclical process. It starts reinforcing. It starts with the intellectuals, and then there's this emotion to it. But the idea that you can go online, you can go on social media, 
and you can customize your life, mm. right? And you can choose what you're seeing that just reinforces your opinion as opposed to, you know, not that long ago, if you turned on the TV, there was one option. There was one station <laughs> and you were going to watch that program or you weren't. And so everyone had these cultural commonalities. And some of those things are good because there's a consensus over and across generations of human beings of what makes an excellent book. Hmm. Tolkien is an excellent book because generations of human beings have said this is something that reflects the true and the beautiful. And there's something really powerful about that as opposed to a book that is really just a flash in the pan for a specific sect of people that are looking to have their opinion reinforced. So if if we're trying to kind of expand our minds, challenge ourselves, what would be book recommendations that are fun as well as uh, as well as a little bit challenging psychologically? It depends on how you define fun, Virginia, <laughs> because I had a lot of fun reading Carl Truman's Strange New World. So. <laughs> See, I, like, I just can't get incredibly – I can't regularly get incredibly invested in a book that doesn't have some sort of storyline with it. Mm. Like I, I need that story element to draw me in, to pull me in, to kind of awaken my imagination as opposed to just a book that's only ideas. And I hope I'm not alone in this. <laughs> well, I think your answer is really – my answer is really going to surprise you, Virginia. Oh. Jane Austen. Okay. Oh, yes. a superb example of this, It's not like we've had you on the show to talk about Jane Austen or anything. (laughs) No, not at all. Um, You know, it's – and she is doing exactly what you are looking for, which is it is a storyline, but it is just rife with ideas Mm. and moral questions and – moral answers really yeah. so it is it is philosophy in a story and that actually is really powerful because you're learning those things without even realizing you don't know. that you're Sneaky. learning them <laughs> yes yes it's very good and you're not being lectured to right you yeah. actually discover these things for yourself yes okay so i really enjoyed this article but I had a bit of a different read on it. Mm. So I think that she is correct that there is a high correlation between use of screens and this self-creation that Brenda was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband and I actually don't own a TV. And outside wow, the workday, we limit our use of screens just naturally. Like we want to create a life that isn't surrounded by a TV um, or a laptop screen. And when we have children, our goal is to continue creating such a life that they don't just resort to watching TV. And so this kind of comes to the liturgy of your environment and how you create your space. So if the TV remote is the most accessible thing in your room and you have to walk to the back to get a book, then you're always going to turn on the TV over picking up a book. And that's just how human nature itself works, right? And so instead, you create a space where books and paper and pens and even paintbrushes are like right there on the middle of your coffee table. So when you sit down after a long day, you're like, well, there's a book. I'll pick it up and, you know, it's a good Jane Austen and we'll see what she's up to today. (laughs) Um, But it's really hard. Mm. And any parent of little children knows how demanding and difficult it is to be a mom or a dad of kids. And so as I was reading this piece, it struck me that I think there's a much bigger and deeper problem that she's pointing to, and that's to the lack of intact families in America oh, wow. or the lack of engaged parents in America. 
So starting in the 70s, you had this major push um, to conceptualize children as resilient, independent beings. And so you could place them in daycare all day or in schools, and both parents could work high-pressure jobs 60 hours a week, and the kids would be fine because they're resilient, and they don't need you to be there all the time. And we know that this is not the case, right? And Brad Wilcox and others at the Institute for Family Studies have done countless work um, looking at uh, studies done in Canada and other places in the United States through the NIH, through Family Research Council, um, looking at the negative impact that even full-time daycare alone has on children. Um, Because in full-time daycare, when you have 20 kids in a room who are screaming and crying, what's the easiest thing to do? You give them a screen. Or when you're a stressed and overworked mom, and and a lot of women work not because they want to, right, but because they have to, and they're not glamorous jobs as like lawyers in D.C., right? (laughs) Like they're they're working at the local local laundromat, right, doing what they can to make ends meet. And they don't want to be there, but they are. And then they come home, and they're tired, and their children are needy. And and what's the easier thing to do? It's to put a screen in front of them. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of this just comes down to mothers and fathers who have either not been present in their children's lives or who have not been engaged when they are around. Because, I mean, you have, what, 40% of children are born to a single parent, up to 70% in the black community. Um, It's just you you don't have parents present. And when you don't have parents present, you see screen rise go up. And, And so she talks about the importance of leisure and the importance of parents telling their children's stories. Mm. But then you look at data where it shows that only a small minority of families even have dinner together every day. And if you're not having dinner together, that's your prime outlet of sharing stories and of connecting with your children in a meaningful way. And instead, a lot of families eat dinner separately and they watch TV or sit in front of a screen to do it. So I think that she's spot on here, but I think there's just a much larger cultural crisis that we're seeing in the breakdown of the family that is then being supplanted by devices. And if adults weren't reliable and if they weren't there to teach you, then of course you look to screens to teach you. And of course you're suspicious of adults in your life because the ones who were supposed to be there primarily, mom and dad, might not have been, Mm -hmm. but the screens were. Yeah. Emma, as you're talking, I'm reminded of Dr. Ben Carson's story. He was raised by a single single mother. Um, he tells the whole story in his book, Gifted Hands. That's an excellent book to read. Um, but his mom was so intentional about limiting their screen time and making her two sons read books. And Dr. Carson really points to those early years of his mom forcing him to read that developed his mind, that got him to then a point where he was interested in the ideas and learning in the medical field, ultimately. And he says, you know, when I first started, I was resentful and I was mad at my mom until he got to a point where he loved it and he loved consuming the material and having his world opened by the ideas in books. And this is a a single mom who was, Emma, like you said, working long hours, coming home tired. But man, those are the people that I think uh, we we owe so much to and kind of the unsung heroes of our world, right? We all know Dr. Ben Carson. We'd, we'd recognize him walking down the street. We probably wouldn't recognize his mom. But I would argue that in some ways she's the greater hero of that story. Yeah. I think one of the things you're talking about too, Emma, is this discomfort that we all have with not constantly being entertained 
where there is, and I recognize I do this in my own life as well, there's always something on, right? Even if it's music sometimes. And actually there's a skill of being able to sit in silence and just to be with your own thoughts. And there's this now impulse with parents, I think, of they're uncomfortable doing that. And so they're not going to allow their child to be in that space either. And they're automatically going to put something in front of their child to entertain them. And the funny part of it is the scream, it's this self-perpetuating cycle where if you give a child a screen because he's fussy, when you take that screen away, he's going to be even fussier <laughs> afterwards, right? Because nothing is going to compare to that level of stimulation where if you just give him a book, he will ask you to read that book 10 times and you will have to read that book 10 times. But mm-hmm. it's it's so much healthier. It's like the children are really everything is new to them and you really don't have to rise to this level of i'm going to give you a new television program to watch you don't that's not what they need that's precisely right (laughs) it's not that children are born as blank slates right like plastic beings you can make into a boy or a girl or whatever you want but you're, you are correct and spot on in saying that they are in many ways waiting to be taught either virtue or vice. And so as parents and as other family members or friends of those children, you have this high responsibility to then introduce them to good things. And so I think of just food analogies for everything, right? <laughs> like no one – okay, so everyone saw the um, video of the mom eating kale – and then the mom eating carrots, and it was it was a video ultrasound of the baby in her womb. Oh, yeah. And so when she ate the kale, the baby's face scrunched up into this like super grossed <laughs> out look, and like and you can just watch the baby's face in the womb. Like technology is so cool. And then when she ate carrots, the baby like had this small smile on its face, oh. and so it was like proof that like no one likes kale from the beginning, right? <laughs> um, but aside from Very that little taste. side thing, but like you have to train yourself to love good things. You mm. have to train yourself to love broccoli because even if it doesn't taste as good as mac and cheese you know broccoli has the nutrients that you need to live a life full of energy and health and I think it's the same with kids like you're saying like it it's a discipline in so many ways to teach them to be comfortable in silence and to be creative in the midst of boredom Um, but just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's not worth it but in fact it is one of the most worthy things that you can give your time to when you're able to train them to love good things. And over time, they'll naturally pick it up, like with your Ben Carson mm-hmm. example. Well, I'm going to put um, a question up on our Instagram story asking for book recommendations so we can all share our favorite books that expand our mind and challenge us and also are just great stories. <laughs> uh, but we're going to be back in just a moment after this to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission – to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. 
Now it is that time, once again, our favorite time of the week here on the show. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Tulsi Gabbard. Gabbard is a former congresswoman for Hawaii. And she has made a lot of waves for speaking out against the far left. On Tuesday, she posted a video announcing she is leaving the Democratic Party. Take a listen. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. So Gabbard is walking away from the party that she once belonged to because she says that they are standing for the powerful elite instead of everyday normal Americans. And you know, I, I do want to be clear that Gabbard is talking about the Democratic Party, not all Democrats. But I think that her decision is really sending a message to far left Democrats that you know, is one that they need to hear, that is speaking really, really honestly as someone who's been inside the Democratic Party. She's saying, this is what I've seen. This is what I've seen change and shift over the years. And ultimately, she's come to the decision, this isn't a party that represents me anymore. Um, but this was big news that broke on Tuesday. What were y'all's thoughts when you heard this? First of all, Tulsi for president, <laughs> Tulsi for queen. She's just incredible. Her poise, um, her tone of voice, um, the way she carries herself, I've always deeply admired, even when we disagreed pol politically or disagreed on key policy questions. Um, she is a woman who seems to genuinely care about seeking truth and seeking what is good for America and the citizens that live within our country, not just good for her political party platform. Mm. Um, and that's always stood out to me um, about her. Um, yeah, I think she's on to something. I, I don't think it's we're we're all Republicans, small D Democrats. And so we tend to think that the majority rules in all aspects mm. and in political parties and in institutions. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's a very powerful and strong minority that is driving the train or drive, driving the train. Can, yeah, can, you can drive a train. <laughs> the conductor drives the train, right? <laughs> I had a professor who used to say driving the ship. And I, I had that in my mind. It was like, don't say ship. <laughs> <laughs> train. We moved to trains. I like it. <laughs> And I think, unfortunately, that has become true of the big D Democratic Party, of the folks on the far left, like AOC and some of these others, are really leading where the Democratic Party is going. And some of the more moderate and old school liberals are left saying, 
this is not my party anymore. The party that doesn't believe in freedom of speech and is advocating for transgender rights and all these things that seem really extreme. So I think she's onto something, and my guess is some other folks will follow suit. Yeah, I think so too. It's so true. And another one of the things in watching this video is you have to ask yourself, how many Republicans would have said word for word what she said? Mm. We, for better and for worse, or just people who were on, just even people outside of the Democratic Party, like how many of our political leaders who are being funded by big business and big tech um, and big pharma would have the guts to say, no, this is actually a really corrupt regime with a lot of money behind it who's pushing for outcomes contrary to the well-being of the American people. So Tulsi is a veteran, and she was actually still actively serving when she was in Congress. And she even had the audacity to say that, like, I've served in in wars and I've protected the American people, but it doesn't mean that every war is good and that we should be engaged in every international conflict. And she had the courage to call in some of those um, just pro-war forces and say, hey, like, let's actually consider what's good for the American people first. Um, And then not to mention everything she's done related to big tech and so on. And and so how many Republicans would even say what she's saying? I think it's becoming sort of this new litmus test that she's put before before the left and the right now saying like, okay, either you're for the American people and you're American first or you're not. And that should be the dividing line by which we judge people. Yeah. Well, a huge congratulations to Tulsi Gabbard for being our problematic woman of the week. And that seems like a good place to leave it for today. So that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. And I do want to thank Emma. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we close out, just really appreciate you being here. And Brenda, it is always a pleasure. So thank you both for joining us today. For those listening as conservatives, man, we so need your support in the podcast world. So if you haven't ever done so, if you haven't taken the time to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, please do so. We read all of those. It makes an incredible difference. It helps us get the word out about the podcast. Uh, and so please take, take five minutes to leave us a review. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.